One. Hi, welcome to Real World, Real Talk. I'm your host, Dr. D.C. Cofield, and you're listening to me and Joel Goza tonight as we talk about his book, America's Unholy Ghosts, The Racist Roots of Our Faith and Politics. Michael Emerson says this book is a paradigm shifter, fundamentally reorients our understanding of race, faith, politics, and our intellectual heroes. You will see the world differently after reading this book. Um, I've known Joel for several years. He's a graduate of Wheaton University, Wheaton College, and Duke University. And when I heard about this book, I got to tell you, I was really uh, skeptical at first because I was like, okay, man, is Joel really, really going to deal with this and deal with some of the ugly roots in our past? Uh, because so many times we glamorize what has happened in the past, and you know his story is his story, and we typically tell all of the good stuff and leave out the bad stuff. Um, but when I got a copy of this and started reading it, I was like, wow. Um, I shifted from being skeptical to going into prayer for him and for what God could do through and with this book. Powerful, powerful read, America's Unholy Ghost. It's available now. You can go online and order it. You can also order it at your local bookstore. And I'm excited to have the author with us tonight, Joel Edward Goza. Welcome, Joel. Dr. Cofield, thank you, thank you. I, uh, I couldn't be more excited um, to be here with you and at the Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church. And I think I only realized today that my first time within an African-American church was here at Good Hope. And it was when I was in middle school, uh, and I, I can't even remember the event that brought me here, but I remember hearing wow. you preach, and I thought to myself, man, if I could grow up to be a preacher like that. <laughs> uh, that didn't happen, um, but it's good to be with you now. Now, if you were in middle school, that means I'm older than I'm actually claiming, <laughs> man. <I> just... <laughs> uh, Joel, what was it that moved you to write such a powerful book? Because as I'm, as I'm reading the book and, and I was reviewing it today, I was thinking to myself, oh my God, man, this is like, it's just something that just keeps on giving. I mean, it's just such a powerful, powerful read. What was it that moved you to write this book? Well, to be honest with you, I started uh, on the book after I had moved into the inner city community. Um, and so I had moved into Houston's uh, Fifth Ward and Denver Harbor area, um, and I had I was on the heels of having dropped out of grad school. Um, and sometimes when God moves, he, he moves in directions that we don't want. And that was the season of life that I was in. Uh, and I found myself in, in an inner city community with a number of friends that I had gone to undergrad with. And as I say in the book, you know, I felt I was in a time of life where I had nothing left to lose. Um, and what we had known from reading scripture was that it was when you are with the poor and the oppressed that you can find Jesus. And that's where Jesus had promised to be found. Um, and so we moved into the community really just to learn. And then I had an opportunity um, to return back to my studies that I had dropped out. Uh, I had dropped out of Duke, Duke School of Divinity. Um, and when I went to Duke, um, when I went back to Duke, I had the questions haunting me from what I had seen in the inner city communities. Uh, I had seen a city with more than enough food, but with 
multitudes of hungry children. I wanted, I wanted to understand how that could be. I wanted to understand how, despite Houston's diversity, we still remained segregated. How, despite everything we were able to accomplish, we proved unable to break the system of generational poverty. Uh, and when I went back to Duke, I ended up starting to study, uh, in a very close time frames, both the work of Martin Luther King Jr., but also the work of the founders of the Enlightenment, uh, writers back from the 1600s, who in my opinion helped us to imagine the world that we live in today, it helped us to be able to institutionalize their ideas and to bring them to life in the modern world and who really ingrained a morality into the modern world that proved remarkably indifferent to the needs of the least of these. Um, and so I started that work back, way back uh, in 2007 um, and it collected dust for a long time. And so when I had an opportunity to hop in again and to look at these guys uh, in depth, I was reading them through the lens of about uh, 10 to 15 years of experience, either in Houston's Hispanic immigrant community of Denver Harbor or in the more predominantly uh, African-American community of Houston's Fifth Ward. And it was a very different angle to read from than if I hadn't have had the experiences of living with inside those communities. You know, as you tell that story, I'm, I'm thinking about Steven Spielberg, mm -hmm. who owned the rights to Schindler's List, mm. but held on to it for years and yes, made sir. the statement after it was produced that he wasn't emotionally ready to produce it. He wasn't mature enough to produce it. Yeah. And it sounds like part of your metamorphosis, part of your development was what was necessary to take this book and take this subject matter to a whole nother level. Yeah, it, it really was. And you know, I had uh, started um, writing it and I had received encouragement actually from a professor I got an email from today who I hadn't talked to in a long time. And he just really encouraged me to be patient with it and to, you know, take my time. And then, you know, as, as you know, in Fifth Ward, we had a lot of stuff going on, you know. Right. And so we had some important things that we felt we were working on um, and that were first priority for me. Um, and so when I, when I had shifted out of the season of where I was getting to minister within Fifth Ward, uh, that's when I had the opportunity to fully devote myself to the reading and writing uh, that was necessary to bring about the book. So I've got to tell you, I was a religion major, Western religion, mm -hmm. uh, but studied a lot of philosophers mm -hmm. at my time at Swarthmore College. And so when I saw these names come up, mm -hmm. uh, I've got to be honest with you and tell you, I've, I've read the works of Hobbes and Locke and mm -hmm. Adam Smith, the three primary people that you mm -hmm. talk about in this book and the foundation that they laid for our society but we didn't read it the way you wrote it. Yes, <laughs> we, we, we didn't, we didn't yes, go back sir. and start looking at how they helped to shape the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. So before we start diving into this in depth, mm -hmm. talk about why this history is so important for us mm -hmm. to look at. Because a lot of times people think about history and they see it as boring. They don't really see it as laying the foundation for what we see today. Why, why do you see right. history being so important? Well, it's so interesting because we use the term theology, right? And that's kind of a big word when we talk about, about religion. But when we look at the theology that we have in Scripture, most of it is history. And it was through history 
that we learned about ourselves and our God and our place in the world. We learned about what the faith community can do right, what the faith community can do wrong. Uh, what becomes really interesting to me, and I write a, a lot about it in the book, uh, is that how you tell that history begins forming who you are as a people. Um, and so, for instance, when you have the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, uh, what the Hebrew scriptures and what the Old Testament tell us is they continue to tell us about the sins of their forefathers. So we know all about the sins of Abraham. We know all about the sins of David. We know all about the failures of these heroes of faith because they wanted us to know this history so that they wouldn't repeat it, so that their children wouldn't repeat it. When you switch to the New Testament, it's the exact same thing. And so you learn about the sins of the disciples, the failures of the disciples, the failures of the early church on the exact same issues that we are dealing with today, on issues from economic equality to racism. And we get that history from Scripture in order that we don't repeat it. And what I realized, you know, as I worked on the project, is that we tell history in a very different way today. When they told history, they told history in a way where we could not repeat sins and where we could honor God. The history that I received from elementary school all the way through graduate school had a very different goal. We whitewashed all of our history in order to be faithful to the people that have given us that history. And I don't know if I said that clear, clearly enough. We tell history in a way that makes us faithful and obedient to our rulers. But we forget the sins of that history and precisely because we forget those sins, we repeat those sins over and over and over and over. And it becomes a broken record. Hmm. Um, and so until we get to a point where we can tell the truth about the role of white supremacy within our nation's foundings, within our churches, it's not simply that we will continue to be inheritors of that racial history, we will pass that along to our children, and then we become per perpetuators right. of the sin of white supremacy. Talk about the political lies that okay. you are mm -hmm. trying to unwrite okay. in, in this powerful book. Absolutely. So when, when the Enlightenment comes on, it comes on the very heels of the wars of religion. And so they are having to rethink their world from the ground up everything about how they think about education, to how they think about politics, to how they think about religion. And what becomes critical to them is writing three primary lies. The first lie was that the government can't do any good, that it becomes impossible to do good. Because in the minds of the writers of the Enlightenment, it was when we, the government tried to do good that it became very violent. And so they said, no, we can't do any good. And we need to understand that all we can do is we can do self-preservation and nothing more. Okay. So that becomes a goal, and that changes the goal of government in world history. The second lie was that economics is a moral-free math. So what that means is that a person's value and a person's worth is exchangeable with anything else that's an economic property. What becomes, the, what becomes the cornerstone of that is the slave block, where people looked at someone, put a price tag on their head, and said this is what their worth is. 
So for instance, when you go to economics classes today, what you're gonna deal with is you're gonna deal with grids and graphs. You're not gonna deal with justice, you're not gonna deal with mercy. The third lie that was really critical was that justice itself is predominantly retributive and not restorative. So when we think about justice, what justice becomes is making sure that we punish rule breakers. And as long as we punish rule breakers and we punish them severely enough, then we believe we can have a just society. Uh, and so when you start seeing uh, the Nixon administration, the Reagan administration getting tough on crime, that is a very old, old ideology that they are trying to live within, that as long as we punish people, then we can create a just society, rather than justice being this more holistic pursuit of making sure that every child is fed, every child is educated, that we take care of the old, that we take care of immigrants. So let's talk about each of these three pillars that you lay out, and, and really I wanna know what made you select these three? So let's start with uh, the first one, Thomas Hobbes. And, and, and one of the things that you say about Hobbes that I, I found interesting is that Hobbes really is almost the father of this ideology. Mm -hmm. um, he doesn't mm -hmm. fully develop it, mm -hmm. um, but he lays the foundation mm -hmm. and kind of starts the fire, so to speak. He, right. He's the spark that gets it started. Right, he's, he is absolutely brilliant. And what I write about in the book is that he is brilliant, but he is not a good marketer. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about that perhaps right at the, right, right at the end with, with Hobbes. What Hobbes is trying to do in his writings is he's trying to bring, as I said before, the wars of religion to an end. And so what he wants to do is he wants to get people to think less religiously, because this is what's setting his world ablaze, and to think more rationally. Right, and, and, and that relationship between rationality and race, mm -hmm. racism, is, is a fascinating right. connection that, that you bring out, but right. continue. Yeah. And what, what I say in the book is that as soon as people start emphasizing reason, they start emphasizing race as well. That the rise of reason and the rise of racecraft happened simultaneously and that that wasn't an accident. Because for Hobbes, what, reason, what looks reasonable to a rich white man is a rich white man, right? And so before, I could kill somebody because they were a heretic. But after Hobbes, I can kill people because they were savage, because they are less developed. And so when reason- And we define savage by not being like me. By not being like me. So reason becomes, for Hobbes, the person that I see in the mirror, the rich white elite, and the people that I'm trying to be like. Uh, and so what Hobbes, what the Enlightenment did is it, it ended religious violence, but it didn't end the violence of Christians. And you can look at the numbers and say the world only grew more violent. But the people that bore the brunt of that violence were the Native Americans and the Africans. You know, it's interesting. I, I made a statement at a church, and um, the pastor frowned at it, of course, mm -hmm. and several other leader, leaders. And I said, there's been more atrocities committed in the name of Jesus in the mm -hmm. history of our world than have right. ever been committed in the name of our life. Right, right. I mean, when you look oh, at absolutely. whether it's the manifest destiny or the, mm -hmm. the papal bulls doctrine of discovery, mm -hmm. you know, and for those of you who are in our audience and those of you who are watching, it's, it's, it's the English best, English first, English only mentality. It's our arrogance mm -hmm. when we go to another country and if they don't speak English, we think they're ignorant. 
right? Or you, you're mm -hmm. sitting in a cab in a foreign country and you say, you know, do you speak English? And they're looking at you like you're crazy. And then you have the nerve to be offended that they don't speak English when you're in their country, right? Right, right. And what's so brilliant about Hobbes is that he knew to do his political agenda, he had to change the way that we thought about Christianity, right? So I'm so glad that, glad that you mentioned that. And so what they do is they start dividing, designing a Christianity that harmonizes with the political impulses of the rich elite. Um, and the whole colonial project, everything from slavery to genocide, you find the blueprint of that work within the works of Hobbes. And what Hobbes believed was that if we can have an all-powerful leader, then he can force peace on us, and then he can help us use the Americas to become really profitable, and we can use slavery, and we can use all these other things to become rich. The problem with Hobbes was is that nobody wanted the all-powerful ruler. What rich folks at the time wanted was for the ruler to serve them rather than for them to serve the ruler. And so what I write about is how John Locke is able to take the exact same type of white supremacy that Hobbes articulated, the exact, time, the exact uh, end goals with slavery, becoming rich. Uh, you know, what's, what's so interesting in Hobbes is he talks about how there's scarce resources within this world. And that's part of the reason for the colonial project, is that resources are scarce, but it doesn't lead to us needing to share. It becomes us needing to accumulate in order to protect ourselves from the rest of the world. And so he gets the ball rolling, but what Locke is able to do in a very brilliant way is to do the same type of barbaric imagination of Hobbes, but put it in better wrapping. So rather than having a leviathan what we simply have is we have a small government that preserves property and so when we talk about taxation with no representation that language came straight from john locke and what he is able to do is he's able to harm by reducing government instead of being able to care for people to only preserving wealth what he is able to do is he's able to harmonize the interest of everybody who has property which became really important. And he so, was- So the ruler mm -hmm. under Hobbes, the monarchy, the king, the throne mm -hmm. in England, now in the Americas becomes who? It becomes George Washington, James Madison, so the John land, Adams, the, the land landowners. Owners. It becomes the landowners. It becomes the 1%. It becomes the 1%. So what, what Locke does is Everybody who has property has a place at the table. And the question becomes is how do you secure their wealth? So I think what's interesting, and you point this out in the book so vividly, this phenomenon as we look at it or think of it as rich people being in office is really not a new phenomenon. No, no. So George- It's always been the case. George Washington was one of the, the wealthiest slave owners in the entire nation when he takes office. Uh, and the whole system of Mount Vernon impoverishes the whole area. So he has tons of slaves, but since he has tons of slaves, the working poor in the area don't have jobs, right? And so he has masons and bakers and everybody else serving his needs and that is the way that the system works so it wasn't a coincidence that not only was one of the richest man president but also there was almost no voting that took place and very little participation 
right. when, when he was made. Which doesn't mean that George Washington didn't, didn't have remarkable virtues. But when you look at what it was designed to do, there's a different story that needs to be told. Yeah. Well, I, I think the other thing that's interesting is there are more ants in the jungle than elephants, right? There are more mm -hmm. poor people in the country right. than rich, but we've never had a poor person elected as president. Right. You know, and you would think right. if all the poor people said, hey, we want a president. Mm -hmm. You could just pick a poor person and say, we're going to make this person president. Mm -hmm. But that wealth is still the governing and deciding mm -hmm. factor in so many instances. Mm -hmm. I want you to talk a little bit about inheritance mm -hmm. and legacy and, and those things that are just a part of our everyday language that mm -hmm. Locke brought into mm -hmm. our vernacular, mm -hmm. uh, but other ideologies that would do the same thing for people of color mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are frowned upon. Right. Right. So, right. for example, Absolutely. college admissions, mm -hmm. you know, legacy is just seen mm -hmm. as a way of life. You know, right. if, if your mother or father went to a school, yeah. you automatically get admitted. Right. You know, or if mother and daddy can pay for you. Well, then I wasn't going to bring that up. Then but yeah. you having a free education is no problem. Right. But if mommy and daddy can't pay for you, then you're entitled. Right. If you expect to be educated. But, but we see legacy mm -hmm. is okay, but right. affirmative action is bad. Right, exactly. Right, giving people exactly. of color an opportunity mm -hmm. to go to school is bad, mm -hmm. but legacy is fine because we just continue that. Talk right. a little bit about sure. Locke's writings around inheritance right. and how well, we see that playing out even today. Well, it's interesting because Locke wasn't extremely wealthy until very later on in life. And you had another guy on the scene that some, some folks had heard about named Isaac Newton. Uh, he kind of made an impact, too. The difference between Locke and Newton, as far as their lived lives early on, was that Locke had a little bit of inheritance from his father. Newton had none. Newton knew poverty. Locke was protected by poverty through inheritance. And so it becomes very important for Locke to protect the role of inheritance within the society that he's designing. And so what he wants to do is he wants to paint those who have inheritance as the meritocracy, that they've worked hard, their families have worked hard, they've built up wealth, and they deserve to pass it along. And so what ends up happening is the way that they do inheritance is it creates a cycle of generational wealth that becomes with every generation further removed from the work that produced it. Now, this also doesn't, doesn't take into account when you tell that story that a lot of the wealth became from the families who were using slaves, right? Um, so that whole notion that the people who have the money are the harder workers that are the meritocracy, it is John Locke that helps write some of those lies into the myths. And what will happen is the father of the Constitution, James Madison, will pick that up James Madison's father was a slave owner. He gets all of his money from his father, and yet he writes within the Federalist Papers when the nation's coming about that we know that the wealthy are the wealthy because they have the most merit, they're the most intelligent, they're the most hardworking, even though he didn't work for anything. And so we've got to protect that privileged minority from the demands of the many. Uh, and that becomes, in the Virginia debates, they sometimes called that Oh, I'm trying to th think of it, uh, the Philosopher's Stone. 
uh, it was that central uh, to the argument. Minority rights, but the minority that they're talking about is always the wealthiest 1%. Yeah. So you move from Hobbes mm -hmm. to John Locke mm -hmm. to Adam Smith. Right. And uh, what I found interesting about your writing about Adam Smith, uh, those students of economy know Adam Smith to be the father of modern economics. Right. But he was a professor of morality. He was a professor of morality. And his views on economics was really just a small part or kind of the of, tip of the iceberg of who he was in totality. Absolutely. So, so talk about absolutely. his role in yeah. helping to ingrain, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's the word you use, in, yeah, ingrain, ingrain racism yeah. in, in our society mm -hmm. and in our practices. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I'll say one word on uh, John Locke and it'll, be, it'll act as a segue. One of the things that Locke does so successfully is he convinces us that true religion is about soul salvation. So it's not about care for the widow and orphan. It's not about, you know, Matthew 25, uh, visiting the immigrant, taking care of the sick. It's only about soul salvation. Adam Smith will write probably about 80 years after John Locke. Take, some, take that with a little grain, grain of salt. But he comes of age in this uh, environment that's called Christian Stoicism. Now, Stoicism was a philosophy out of Greece that was very different than Christianity. But during that time, after John Locke writes, they're put into the same blender and they become interchangeable. So when Adam Smith starts writing, what he is trying to do is he is trying to make sure that the modern project doesn't go to self-destruction. And it is really interesting because what I write about in the book is that there's actually two Adam Smiths. There's an Adam Smith from a prophetic tradition when he tells history and when he looks at history. And then there is a Adam Smith from the Stoic tradition and that's the solutions that he designs that we hear about in our economic classes today. You know, so if you talk to Adam Smith about slavery, for instance, say Adam Smith, what is slavery about? What he would say is that slavery is about the desire of white men to rape African-American females. He would say that slavery is not only a war against the slaves, but it is a war against the poor as well. Because rather than the rich investing in jobs, the rich only invest in slaves. If you ask Adam Smith what was the threat to an economy, he would say high profits. If you asked Adam Smith how do you measure a healthy economy? He said you would measure the healthy economy by what people at the bottom are making. That's how you measure a healthy economy. Now, you know, none of that. Yeah, none of that makes it out of Adam Smith's books into the yeah, classroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We never yeah. talk about it, the wealth of a nation. We never talk mm -hmm. about any mm -hmm. of that. It's, it, yeah. you know, the trickle-down theory of mm -hmm. economics. It's almost like they took one right. part of what Adam Smith said, right. the morality piece, left out. Right. And so he said, he, he, what I write about is how he suffers from his own persuasiveness. Because he did this alliteration that said that, you know, when we go out to eat after this, it is not the butcher, the brewer, the baker's desire for our good that we receive our meal, but it is his desire for his own self-interest. And he writes about how we have this invisible hand 
that coordinates the self-interest of individuals into the common good. And it is so poetic the way that he writes it, and it's so easy to grasp that it captures the imagination of the economically minded. It helps them understand the beauty of being able to have the most basic fellowship and that basic fellowship becoming out of self-interest. And, and, and it's powerful. And yet what Adam Smith doesn't do that a moral, a moral philosopher must do is he doesn't look at the fact that you have bread and beer and beef going to waste, not because of a lack of a hunger, but because the hungry of the poor never by its own self harmonizes with the self-interest of the wealthy. And so when I was studying economics and when I was working in corporate America, Adam Smith made a lot of sense, right? When I was watching kids go hungry in a city that had plenty, you realize Adam Smith only described a system for those who it works for and never does what a moral philosopher must, and that is talk about the very spaces that our society is not working for us and address those. Okay, I want to go back because one of the things that I have struggled with, and I've gone to predominantly white schools all my life, mm -hmm. um, from high school and prep school to undergrad, mm -hmm. graduate school, um, mm -hmm. like your education at Wheaton, my education at Dallas Seminary comes out of an evangelical mm -hmm. foundation. Mm -hmm. And it always bothered me that evangelicals would fight for the right to life of the unborn, mm -hmm. but cared nothing about those after they mm -hmm. were born. Right, right. It, it, just, it just seemed to be, I, I just mm -hmm. never understood how we could emphasize John 3.16 mm -hmm. and then act like Matthew 25 mm -hmm. didn't exist, mm -hmm. right? Just basic philosophy mm -hmm. of Jesus, you know, the poor, the widow, the orphan, you know, mm -hmm. just how do we treat people? Mm -hmm. You talk about Locke really setting us on that course mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and shifting the focus mm -hmm. of what we would call evangelicalism historically. Right. That was historically concerned about mm -hmm. not just my soul salvation, mm -hmm. but how I lived on earth. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, and maybe uh, that, that's a good place to talk about, you know, Martin Luther within the Reformation, you know, he's worried about his soul. But what you'll read in the works of Martin Luther is you'll have these other essays on whether or not do we flee a deadly plague. And for Luther, no, we're not afraid of death. We are afraid of being people who leave the needy, but we're not afraid of death. What Locke is able to do is to take some of the impulses that Luther has and simplify them and take out Christian responsibility from the calculus of Christians. And that proved prophetic on American soil. So let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. Take out Christian responsibility mm -hmm. from being a Christian. Right. Which to me kind of means you're really not being a Christian. Right, but right. Let, let, let talk about that because sure. I think that's... That is so fundamental to what we see today. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason that we'll never see synergy or see mm -hmm. desegregation mm -hmm. within our worship experiences on Sunday morning. Right. 
because right. we have a fundamentally different mm -hmm. view of the scripture, mm -hmm. right? If I see the scriptures as the tool to liberate me mm -hmm. and you see the scriptures as a tool to enslave me, mm -hmm. then or it's hard for us to, to worship the save your own soul, right? Because they're not even interested in. <laughs> right, right. So, <laughs> you know? you, so you're, you're yeah. okay with me when I'm at the altar, mm -hmm. but we have a problem when I walk down the street, which is mm -hmm. part of the, mm -hmm. part of, I think, the, the issue that many African-Americans have even embracing and embracing mm -hmm. Christianity, even though Christianity was on the African mm -hmm. continent before the colonialists came. Right, right. Um, and mm -hmm. Christianity has been there long enough to be a traditional African religion. Right. But we have this problem yeah. when, when white evangelicals could go to church on Sunday mm -hmm. and then go to a hanging on Sunday afternoon mm -hmm and didn't see a problem with that. Mm -hmm. Right. And in reading your book, it seems like Locke was the person that really mm -hmm. helped mm -hmm. people separate heaven and earth. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He, he helped. And, and I'd spoken about the three political lies. Maybe I should say what the three religious lies that drove the experiment were. The religious lies was that I could know God and be in right relationship with God without being in right relationship with the broken and the abused. They had to convince Christians that this was the case. Okay. The second step becomes what Locke did, was that true religion is soul salvation, rather than what James writes about, as far as taking care of the poor and the widow. And then the third lie, kind of encapsulate everything, was is that I can be indifferent to injustice and still be intimate with God. And one of the things I write about in the book is that this, these lies are not liberal or conservative. One of the things that, that the white church had in common across liberal and conservative divides was the ability to know God without knowing black people. And that is a problem. So, for instance... And Native Americans. And Native right. Americans, right. or Mexicans now, or, right. you know, what, whatever that is. But once we get to know each other, and if we want intimacy together, you know, I have a son that's shouting in the back of the room. You're going to have to know him at some point, right? You're going to have to know Naomi. Because as a father, that is part of who I am. Now, if God is our father, and we think we can be intimate with God without being with intimate with each other... That's a lie. Yeah. Wow. You know, I was thinking back to when the uh, Rodney King beating mm -hmm. took place and there was this outrage, you know, it was the mm -hmm. first time that there was such vivid imagery mm -hmm. of an African-American being beaten by the mm -hmm. Los Angeles Police Department, right. right? The rumors were out there for years. People mm -hmm. testified to it. Nobody believed mm -hmm. it. And you see it. And Christianity Today, I believe, did an interview mm -hmm. with the head of the division of the officers mm -hmm. that were part of that mm -hmm. uh, fracas. And mm -hmm. he was an elder mm -hmm. at Grace Church. Mm. Um, and they asked him how his faith, uh, Grace Church is pastored by John MacArthur, and they asked mm -hmm. him how would his faith play a role in the investigation mm -hmm. and in what happened? And he said, nothing. Mm -hmm. He said, it plays no role. 
plays no role right? at all. My, my faith mm -hmm. is completely separate yeah. from what I do when I go to work and how I view things. Right. And I thought it was, uh, thought it was really interesting. It was a profound moment. I, I, didn't, I honestly didn't know that. Um, what, what's interesting, though, is in a similar time frame uh, with Rodney King, you have another movement going on in America called Promise Keepers. Right. Right. And what Promise Keepers wanted to say is that we can have, rec from a white perspective, we can have racial reconciliation with our African-American brothers and sisters. We can get together, we can sing songs. Actually, we let the sisters out of Promise Keepers. Right, right. <laughs> but at least with the brothers. We can sing songs, we can read the same scriptures, and the beautiful thing is, is that I don't have to learn anything about your politics. I don't have to learn anything about the way that you see the world. Matter of fact, offended. If you suggest. If you suggest that I need to. Right, yeah. right. And that's part of the white arrogance, right, is that I can think that I know how to, that I think, I, I grew up in a segregated space, and I think that I can think rationally, quote unquote, about politics, about religion, about everything that's facing us, and the logic always works and it's always persuasive within an echo chamber. So segregated logics work well in segregated spaces, but they don't face the realities that's happening in, in communities like here in Third Ward, Fifth Ward, Denver Harbor. And so any thinking that is developed within segregated spaces is always gonna have racial edges. But it becomes so critical for us to deny racism that we are never able to talk about the racial edges of our thinking, how it couldn't be any other way when thinking is developed within segregated spaces. So what I hear you saying is when racism is given birth to out of the womb of rational thinking, mm -hmm. then anybody who thinks otherwise is irrational. Is irrational and shouldn't mm -hmm. be listened to, and mm -hmm. their words and thoughts shouldn't mm -hmm. be given credence, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And you know, one of the brilliant things with Locke that he understood is that I had to convince people what Christianity was before they ever read the scripture. You have to know what the most important verses are before you've ever read the scripture. You have to know that Christianity is about soul salvation. And so he writes this book called Reasonableness of Christianity. And what will happen is every time it comes across a political implications, a, a passage that has political implications, he'll say, but that's not what Paul meant. Because we know that this is all about salvation. We know that the, the politics of Moses don't matter. Because you have to, so like when you look at the Beatitudes, for instance, once you spiritualize the Beatitudes, you can change what they mean. Blessed are the poor. Well, we know that the only way of understanding that is the poor in the spirit, you know. And so you start spiritualizing them until you take the earthly implications of the prophetic faith away. Wow. Wow. So you make this shift, Hobbes to Locke mm -hmm. to Adam Smith, mm -hmm. and now we get to what we see today. Mm -hmm. um, but before we get to what we see today... You spend a lot of time with King. Spend a lot of time with King. And I think it's, uh, it's not coincidence, for those of you who are watching, those of you who are in our audience, that you chose today mm -hmm. for us to have this talk. Mm -hmm. um, this is the 51st anniversary mm -hmm. 
of the shooting of Dr. King. Uh, and when you talk about the beloved community mm -hmm. and his writings, mm -hmm. his evolution, mm -hmm. um, his letter from a Birmingham jail, mm -hmm. what he hoped for, what he saw, mm -hmm. and the opposition that he met. Mm -hmm. Talk about that in the relationship to America's Unholy Ghost. So one of the things I write about, he comes, I, I write about him on the hills of Adam Smith. In fact, I close the Adam Smith chapter out with a letter from the Birmingham jail. And what I argued in the Adam Smith section is that it's through Adam Smith that we get our morality of indifference. And what I say in that... And define that for us, morality of indifference. Morality of indifference. What that means is that I can be indifferent to the suffering that I see, and it's all going to take care of itself. That I can be a spectator to this thing and not be immoral. Can I cause it? and not be immoral? I think that that's a, oh, that's from a different angle I hadn't, hadn't thought about. Well, and, and let me tell you why I asked mm -hmm. that, because I'm always, I'm, I'm always interested in seeing mm -hmm. people who benefit mm -hmm. from the poverty of mm -hmm. others, mm -hmm. and then want to be celebrated mm -hmm. right. when they make a gesture of kindness mm -hmm. to the very system that they've helped to Right. Create. So I'll never support a tax base, but I'll pay for somebody at the corner, you know, to have a meal or something like that. Sure. And, sure. and now that I caught my thought, I know what I want to say on, on that. Okay. What Adam Smith does is he raises self-interest to a virtue. And that's part of Stoic philosophy. Rather than self-sacrificial love of that we talk about in the prophetic tradition that we talk about through Jesus, once we get into this economic game, what Adam Smith was able to convince us of was that as long as we pursue our own self-interest, then we are acting morally. And so what you're able to do is you're able to divide cause from effect. So I employ people, and I pay them minimum wage, but I am able to not be responsible for the chaos in their house of trying to live off of $5 an hour. Even as my profits skyrocket. Even as I can pay them more. Even as I can pay. Because, man, I'm just here pursuing my own self-interest, and that's just human nature. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. I, I see <laughs> the same thing happening when we had the uh, subprime lending right. crisis. Right, and I write about that. President yeah. Obama comes in. Yeah, that's right. what I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I read the book. I'm, President I'm, Obama, though, comes in and, uh, and we want to bail out all of these banks. Right. And I had the idea, right, if, if all of these people mm -hmm. are losing their homes, mm -hmm. then instead of giving the banks all of this money and mm -hmm. interest-free, you mm -hmm. know, uh, prime rate, etc., right. why not give $250,000 mm -hmm. to every individual who's a homeowner and if they owe on their home that money has to go to pay off mm -hmm. their mortgage mm -hmm. instead of giving it to the banks who are just mm -hmm. going to hold on to it yeah right? right and now if you help me pay off my house mm -hmm. guess what i have i have more money and mm -hmm. i can spend it in the economy and so on and so on but it went all to the banks mm -hmm. because we treated the banks 
and corporations like they're individuals. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the things I talk about is how, you know, once humans become economic entities, economic entities became humans. And so we recognize the humanity of corporations before in the Supreme Court before we recognize the humanity of Dred Scott. Three-fifths of a person just wasn't enough to be a person, but a corporation was a person. You know, but, it, but it's interesting you, you bring up that crisis in our nation. Uh, I, had a, I, I had a friend that had a, he was doing a PhD at Harvard, uh, just happened to be conflicts of interest in investment banking. This is before the crash. And what you realize when you watch that thing out, do you know why people didn't go to jail? Because the rules were written so poorly that they couldn't send them to jail. Because the people breaking these things were the ones helping to shape the laws. The problems ran so much deeper than us not putting them in jail. We should have. They were writing the law so they would never go to jail. While we are wrecking family. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about King and that shift mm -hmm. that you make to Birmingham jail and, mm -hmm. and what you, in reading Dr. King's writings, mm -hmm and looking at it through this historical lens, mm -hmm. see his struggle right. with the church, the white church, mm -hmm. the prophetic black church, its voice, mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, I close the, the, the chapter on Adam Smith with a letter from Birmingham jail. And the way that I describe a letter from Birmingham jail is that it is a letter to a stoic nation. Because all of the morality that Adam Smith was trying to write, in a letter to Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King is trying to unwrite that. So what he will say in a letter to Birmingham jail is, man, I understand the Ku Klux Klan. What I don't understand is white Christians staying on the sideline and doing nothing, you know? What I don't understand, you know, if he was in our day, is how you can be doing this to immigrants and not saying that what Donald Trump is doing is sheer evil and that we put him there, and that we've got to address this stuff. And so what he, in, in a letter to Birmingham jail, he has two national figures in mind, John Kennedy and Billy Graham. And what they have in common is the ability to be indifferent to what is going on in the ground and their refusal to join with him in his struggle. And one of Graham's greatest regrets of his legacy is his indifference during those, those times. It haunted him. Um, and so what King does is he brings the prophetic tradition to bear on American politics. And yet he does it so brilliantly that we still have so much to learn from the way that he did it. You know, one of the things that is remarkable and that is so important that we need to keep in mind today is that when King worked, he worked with the wisdom of a pastor. And what I mean by that specifically is that he knew that people were human. So often in our nation, we believe we can know each other without ever having met. It's so easy for a child in Fifth Ward, for instance, to think that once they can pay their bills, that they'll have no more problems. But we're, that's just not true. White racist people are people. If our kids get sick, we hurt. If we've got problems in our marriage, 
we hurt. If, you know, our passions are always the same. What ends up happening, however, is that in America, it's, everybody has the problems that are common to man. What King wanted to do is to end the issues that were particular to African Americans. Because not only do you have in the African American community all of the problems that are common to man, but you have systems that are designed to destroy people. And so King works to bring an end to those systems that are destroying people. But he does so in a way that is committed to love, that is committed to upholding the dignity of every human. And I think that we need to really hold on to that edge. But what he's trying to get us to do is he's trying to get us to see ourselves as participants rather than spectators. And believing, one of the things that made Stoicism so dangerous in America was that it happened within a democracy. And what happens when you have the inability to have moral depth perception is you don't even take responsibility for the work of the people that you have voted into office. And that becomes a very dangerous road to go down. Yeah. Um, talk, talk about the role of President Johnson. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, I think when you talk to people, especially people of color, African-American people, you ask them, you know, who's mm -hmm. the greatest president? You know, it's mm -hmm. easy to pick Lincoln. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess more modern people mm -hmm. may say Clinton, mm -hmm. of course, now Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. But Lyndon Baines Johnson, Mm -hmm. was a trailblazer. And you trailblazer. talk about the day that Kennedy died and he was sworn into office, mm -hmm. that he had a clear vision mm -hmm. to out Roosevelt Roosevelt mm -hmm. and out Lincoln Lincoln. Right. right. Talk about that, because I found that fascinating. So, you know, he grows up in the Texas Hill Country, you know. It's, I'm, I'm kind of glad that Texas created one of your favorite presidents. Um, uh, but he had also, he didn't do the Ivy League schools. You know, he did Texas State. He worked with poor children uh, growing up before he gains political power. And by the time that he gets office, he was mentored by Roosevelt. But the problem with Roosevelt is like when he cut the New Deal, he always cut that along racial edges. That the New Deal cut differently. And so he wants to out-Roosevelt Roosevelt. He wants to do the New Deal, but do it for all Americans and not just some Americans. And that's a piece of our history that we have lost as well. Um, so so that, that war on poverty is not just a war to benefit black people, poor people, period. Poor people, period. Poor people, people. And what he talked about is that it's time in this nation to translate equality as a theory to equality as a reality. And what he does is he says that we don't know how we're going to get there, but what we know is here and now, we're going to start the fight against poverty. And so he starts environmental protections, he starts health care protections, he starts elderly protections, and he gets the ball rolling. And what we see is within 10 years, the percentage of poverty have dropped in half. And even though he didn't know everything, they sure made a big difference. And the problem became obviously, that we gave up on the war of poverty. And as we talked about on Sunday night, 
that what our nation does instead of warring against poverty is to create policies that war against the poor. Right. So defunding these things became a bipartisan commitment. The law and order of Reagan became a bipartisan commitment. Um, and when it comes to the presidents, after Reagan, you have, you have Reagan and you have Bush, and then you get Clinton, Bush, and Obama. They all cut along the lines of Reagan, though. They all had much more imagination, much more in common with Reagan than they did with Lyndon Johnson, who believed in the power for America to address its injustices. And so you have the civil rights bills and you have all of those things happening, and it was the African-American church that was leading the way for these changes. For two years of our history, we listened to the African-American church. Other than that, we wrote them off. Yeah. So let's talk today. Mm -hmm. You talk about the defensiveness of people when they hear mm -hmm. the term the race card. Mm -hmm. You're playing mm -hmm. the race card. Um, mm -hmm. Unarmed African-American men being shot and killed. Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter starts. Mm -hmm. And the comeback is all lives matter. Right. Um, right. What are your thoughts as you look at this and, and see right. that in, in the continuum of mm -hmm. America's on the Holy Ghost? Right. Uh, you know, I had grown up believing that if you work hard, that you can make it. When I started working more in depth with children in Fifth Ward, I knew that it wasn't a coincidence that the high school, one of, one of my high schoolers ref referred to the local high school as the place where dreams go to die. Um, that they were more likely to go to prison for nonviolent or prison offenses than graduate college. That this community will create some exceptional people, but the rules will break so many of, of us regular folks. Um, and what I heard was, you know, the need for people to take responsibility, this, that, or the other. What became interesting to me is that we lived in a city that wasn't ready to take responsibility for Fifth Ward community. So rather than the victim card or the race card being only in the hands of the poor, it was just as much, if not more so, in the hands of the wealthy and the powerful who pretended we didn't have the ability to address some of these issues that are at our doorstep. And I started to believe that we could address these and that we could change. And so I feel that we have often, when, for those who are outside of poverty, uh, that we are more likely to play the victim card when it comes to issues of poverty than people who are poor. Uh, and that, that took a lot of mind-numbing things to see, uh, to start believing that that was the case. So when, when you have, for example, uh, the cry of reverse racism. Right. You know, when you have the, mm -hmm. no, black lives don't matter, all lives matter. All matters, lives matter, right? right. Or blue lives matter. Right. It's uh, uh, racism masquerading as morality. It's okay to say black lives matter and put a period on it. You know, it is okay, because 
it's interesting, and I write about this in uh, the chapter on John Locke. What John Locke wrote was that, what is a human? His answer is, we don't know. We don't really know. Because after all, you have these women in Africa having sex with baboons. What are we to call their children? It's an answer that we can't come up with. When Jefferson writes, all men are created equal, he meant it. He just didn't know what a man was. And it became part of the project within the American experiment to question, well, what is wrong with black folks? And when we see the movements today, you know, it's easy to say, well, why do inner city schools fail? Maybe their kids aren't as sharp. That would be persuasive unless I, until I met a lot of the kids in the, in the failing schools to realize that they were brilliant. Well, they were human, you know? Um, and we, due to the power of white supremacy, we, we have begun losing our humanity throughout our nation's history. And the miracle of the black church was simply that they saw African Americans as humans. When in every walk of life, when every walk of life tried to question that. Yeah. You know, uh, several years ago, there was a district attorney mm -hmm. in office here by the name of Chuck Rosenthal, mm -hmm. who sent out what was a very inflammatory and racist email mm -hmm. that he thought was humorous mm -hmm. with an African-American man lying dead mm. next to a slice of watermelon. Mm and the caption read, justifiable homicide. Mm. Um, what I found really disconcerting about that mm -hmm. was when I learned he was a Sunday school teacher at Second mm -hmm. Baptist. Mm -hmm. The Ku Klux Klan were usually Sunday school teachers. Absolutely, no, absolutely. Sunday school mm -hmm. teachers, deacons, ministers, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, just recently, on the heels of his member losing mm -hmm. an election in November. John Culberson. John Culberson. Um, mm -hmm. His pastor, Dr. Ed Young, mm -hmm. made a statement that anybody who was a Democrat mm -hmm. was following a godless mm -hmm. religion. Right. And it's amazing to me, mm -hmm. um, and I've been so disappointed and what mm -hmm. I perceive to be the hypocrisy right. of the Republican Party mm -hmm. to take the moral high ground mm -hmm. with a president like Clinton mm -hmm. and then sit on the sidelines mm -hmm. with a president like Trump. Right. <clears throat> right. And to do it in the name of one issue. Mm -hmm. And I'm not mm -hmm. sure if Trump is pro-life mm -hmm. or not. I, I, I've never really heard him <laughs> definitively say anything, yeah. you know, yeah. one way or another, but yeah. that, that that is the whole premise. So mm -hmm. him grabbing women mm -hmm. in the crotch, that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, him being married multiple mm -hmm. times and having right. affairs and paying hush money, it's okay. You know, yeah. we're, we're not gonna say anything about mm -hmm. that because he holds mm -hmm. the line on a pro-life mm -hmm. agenda. Right. 
What, and what, it was what do brilliant, you say about though. that? You know, I mean, I think, I think, you know, Trump may be an idiot, but he's a lot smarter than I am. A lot smarter than I am, because I didn't think he could do it. And he made one I don't bet. think he thought he could do it. <laughs> he, made, he may not have. But, but he made one definitive bet. And that was, is that more explicit racial rhetoric from him would win him more votes than it would cost him. But, but you talk about that in mm-hmm. the book, the, the ability of the aristocracy, mm-hmm. of the rich, mm-hmm. when all else fails, mm-hmm. if the poor actually start looking at the rich as the enemy, mm-hmm. then the rich are in trouble. Right. So we're going to divide the poor right. along racial right. lines. And you know, one of the things that you're, you're and so, favorite. And so this, this, this blue collar billionaire, never heard those terms go together. Right. Right. But he becomes the champion yeah. of, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, who we would call, you know, the, the Appalachian, you know, mm-hmm. hillbilly. He becomes the champion right. of, you know, the most ignorant yeah. in America. He yeah. becomes their champion, yeah. um, even though they criticize his daughter for marrying a Jewish gentleman, right? right. But he becomes their champion mm-hmm. because he was able to divide along yeah. those lines. And, you know, one of the things that Adam Smith writes about, and I don't write about this in the book, but he says, you know, if we're going to be friends, we don't have to like the same people, but we sure as better hate the same people. Um, And you see that playing out, you know, and one of your other favorite presidents, uh, Lyndon Johnson, talked about this. You know, he said that, you know, if I can convince the lowest white person that he is better than the best black person, I can rob his pockets all day. And from the very beginning, slavery was not just a war on slaves. It was first and foremost, and that has to be recognized, but it was absolutely cruel to the white poor of the South. It was absolutely cruel. But as long as we could convince those folks that African Americans were their threat, not not the people who had the slaves. Right then we can play on those racial instincts. Um, but the bigger deal for, for some of the Trump voters, um, because there, there are Trump voters out there that are just remarkable human beings. The issue that I have as someone who worked in Fifth Ward was that the racism wasn't a deal breaker. It should have been a deal breaker. And it allowed people to, and people started justifying that, you know. And one of the things, you know, as that I became quite clear on is that when politics is all about imperfect candidates, that it becomes very important to choose the lesser of two evils. Yeah. The African-American vote, ever since an African-American has started to vote, they've always had to choose the lesser of two evils. You know, the African-American church, does it vote Democrat? Yes. Is it completely against abortion to have a moral concern? Absolutely. Why is that? It is because for African-Americans, more often than not, racism is a deal breaker. And since it's that way in the African-American church, it needs to become that way in a white church, too. Yeah. You know, I'm reminded of a line in one of my favorite movies, uh, Shooter. Mm Mm-hmm. At the end of that movie, towards the end, character mm-hmm. played by Ned Beatty says, you know, there are no Democrats or Republicans. Mm-hmm. There are no Sunni or Shiites. Mm-hmm. 
You know, there are no Protestant Catholics. It's just the haves and the have-nots. Mm -hmm. And this last election, as, as you mm -hmm. said, it was the vote for the lesser of two evils. Mm -hmm. um, but the last election, mm -hmm. to me, was very, very clear. Mm -hmm. It was very clear that it was the haves and the haves. Mm -hmm. It was the haves and the haves. Right, that mm -hmm. nobody who was running could even pretend like they identified mm -hmm. with me. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. or my struggle. Right, right. You know, or the issues that plague this community mm -hmm. or plague my parishioners. Right. And um, so yeah. let me do this before we go any further. Those of you who have questions, if you have written them down, um, please pass them to the aisle and we'll have somebody uh, pick them up and sort through them. Uh, if you need a three by five card and you'd like to ask a question, Please raise your hand. If we have any more, we'll make sure we get a card to you and we'll take some questions in the next several minutes. All right? Yes, right. sir. And, you know, when my wife and I argued, and uh, usually after we argue, I understand that she's right all the time. But one of the, <laughs> one of the statements I had said was, you know, if the status quo is the problem, Hillary Clinton is not your you know, and I understood that. But I also understood that she was not someone trying to crucify the African-American community intentionally, that she didn't run off of closing down borders, that she didn't run off of uh, persecuting Muslims. She didn't run off of any of those things. And so there are times when imperfect candidates are still an easier decision you know sure, so it, sure. people talked about how it was a complicated decision i said man maybe it looked complicated from river oaks it didn't look complicated from fifth ward yeah you know no absolutely 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 and i think there's a sense that we all hope for more mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and dream about more right and and want more to come mm -hmm. uh you did a workshop at a conference that both of us shared in and i was mm -hmm. speaking to a gentleman who was in your workshop, mm -hmm. an Anglo gentleman, mm -hmm. and I asked him, I said, hey man, what'd you think about the workshop that Joel Goza did in his book? And he said, man, it was really, really, mm -hmm. really good. He mm -hmm. said, I just have one question. What am I supposed to do now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's the question mm -hmm. I want to mm -hmm. end our time with tonight right. before we get to the questions from the audience. Mm -hmm. What are some people what are people supposed to do now? And I'm gonna ask it like this, especially well-meaning, good-hearted white people. Mm -hmm. Because for black people, mm -hmm. I read the book and I'm like, whew, okay, God, <laughs> man, finally somebody had the nerve to say it. Man, it's got yeah. intellectual integrity. I'm like, yes, thank you, all right. Cause I know I'm not crazy. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, okay, it makes sense. I'm mm -hmm. trying to figure out how white churches look all past the words of Jesus, right? I'm like, I don't even want to be a Christian anymore. Just call me a Christ follower, mm -hmm. you know, because- I like remember we, that conversation. Yeah, because yeah. we politicized that term so much. Mm -hmm. Man, I don't even want to identify mm -hmm. with it now. Like, what do you want white people to do with this? Because basically what you've said is, we have built our society on a lie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That we're better than everybody mm -hmm. else, that we're better than everybody else in this mm -hmm. country and everybody else in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have used that lie to justify 
heinous acts against people, mm -hmm. mistreatment of people, mm -hmm. whether they were women or poor, mm -hmm. or people of color. Mm -hmm. we, we have used this lie. Mm -hmm. Now what? Well, in, you know, in a society like ours, truth is difficult, you know. Um, and one of the things uh, that there was a philosopher named Wittgenstein wrote, he says, to get people from a lie to the truth, you have to begin at the lie and then work your way back to the truth. And the truth is this, is that we are God's babies. The truth is this, is that we can learn, we can change and grow. So the question I want to ask my white audience is, is who are you learning from and who are you following? If you go to the voting booth and all you know is who Fox News told you to vote for, you do not have the ability to cast a non-racist vote. And until we start following the vision of King and the vision of the prophetic black church and to put ourselves in this position where we can learn and also where we can participate, then we will continue to be segregated and we will continue to lose an essential part of our humanity. It can be radically different. And the diversity of America should not be our liability. It should be our asset. But it will only become our asset where we, when we work with each other and when we follow those who have had some type of historical integrity. The only, even when we learn about these things, uh, it's so important to understand, okay, who were the thinkers in history that changed our nation for the better? And what tradition did they form? And let's follow that tradition. And let's start developing some moral depth perception. Because as long as all of my thinking is segregated, I will never have the moral depth perception to navigate this world well, to navigate this world in a way that my good heart demands that I do. You know what's sad? Your book is titled America's Unholy Ghost, mm -hmm. but it could be transferred and retitled Australia's mm -hmm. Unholy Ghosts, yeah. South Africa's Unholy, Unholy Ghosts. Ghosts. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, 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 the, the, the racist roots of faith and politics mm -hmm. yeah. tracing back to Hobbes and Locke mm -hmm. and Smith mm -hmm. and what was transmuted mm -hmm. yeah. through colonialism around the world right. is, is something that mm -hmm generations are gonna to have to give account for. Mm -hmm. um, I think when we talk about racism, it is so in the soil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is so in our spirits, mm -hmm. you know, that mm -hmm. for us to take a look at ourselves mm -hmm. in that kind of way right. is going to be yeah. a real challenge. Mm -hmm. And so often as people with good hearts, 
we think that if we just work harder, we can make the right changes on our own. And what I compare that to is that if what you have in the issue of race is like air pollution, running harder isn't gonna cure the sickness that you have from air pollution. The answers to the questions that face America can never be devised within segregated context. Regardless of how hard you try, how good you try to be, that is the wrong environment to produce the type of thinking that we need today. Well, one of the areas we haven't touched on that, that I want to touch on is the area of education mm -hmm. and public education. Right, right. There are districts in mm -hmm. our country who have worked harder to avoid mm -hmm. implementing the spirit of mm -hmm. Brown versus the Board of Education mm -hmm. than they have to imp implement those spirits right. and implement those principles. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier, um, children are born brilliant. Mm -hmm. They have brilliant within them, mm -hmm. regardless of race, creed, or color. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the question is, do we nurture mm -hmm. that? Right. And right. Do teachers and educators mm -hmm. believe that about all children? Mm -hmm. Or do we believe that children come with certain handicaps? Mm -hmm. How do we see this mm -hmm. playing out? You know, we've had a situation mm -hmm. here in Houston where we had 15 mm -hmm. schools failing, all mm -hmm. of them east of Main Street. Uh, right. you know, we've seen moves made mm -hmm. to separate mm -hmm. um, and keep separated. Mm -hmm white from black, mm -hmm. but also mm -hmm. the haves from the have-nots. Right. How do you see this playing in and what's something that we can do in a very mm -hmm. practical way mm -hmm. to see the brilliance and the potential mm -hmm. and the possibility in all of our children? Well, you know, I think about um, when I was wrestling with these issues in Fifth Ward, I was thinking about uh, how our military would operate and how failure was not an option. Um, in education, we need to understand that failure is not an option. When I was looking at the schools within Fifth Ward, for instance, in our feeder pattern, we had two counselors for about 10 different schools. Two counselors. Why do we not invest in those kids? Well, maybe their SATs are wrong. Maybe they're Da, da 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 And I don't have all of the answers to our educational problems. But I do know this, is that unless we take that seriously, and unless we attack that with a very long-term plan that over-invests within our children, we will never have the communities that we should have. Because rather than raising people's talents, we are burying them. And even when you look at the way that education was developed in the West, there was always two different tracks. In the, Lock, in the works of John Locke again, he had an education for the wealthy gentleman. And it followed a very particular format. What was his alternative to that? It was the workhouses. Where he would snatch kids out of the working poor kids, this was his proposal, and put them into a workhouse at the age of three to teach them industriousness and to teach them this, that, or the other. Um, our schools are designed to produce a certain type of student in one location, 
but a, a, a student for a very different type of life in another location. And until we start investing in our public schools to where private school makes no sense, we're underinvesting. We should be aiming for a public school system that should be able to outperform private schools. And we can do that. It's going to be costly to do that. Yeah, you used the example of President Kennedy mm -hmm. announcing that we want to put a man on the moon. Right, right. And he says, we don't know how we're going to get there. Right, everybody and looked it, around going, huh? Yeah. how are we yeah. going to do that? How are we going to defeat gravity? He said, man, we don't know what spaceships need. We're going to figure it out. We don't know how to beat gravity. This thing's going to be expensive. And he goes, there's going to be failures along the way. There's going to be failures. But the end of our mission to the moon is the moon. And so if we match that type of vision and that type of passion and that type of focus on education, we don't have to know everything right now. What we got to know is that this thing is not a free ride, that we can't pretend that gravity is undefeatable, undefeatable, that the way that things are are the way that things always will have to be, that the end of public education is an education that unlocks and unleashes the incredible gifts of our children from every walk of life, and that by empowering those kids, we will have an opportunity for a life that is much more humane, that lives into our national ideologies, that lives into our gifts, and we can do that thing. Yeah. Let me uh, take some questions from the audience. Do we have any questions written down? Yes, ma'am, you can bring them up. Um, question, when and how specifically was the color of Christ whitewashed? Um, I found mm -hmm. it really interesting. Um, I believe her name is Megan Kelly. Uh, was yeah. commenting on yeah. um, an African-American young lady who had drawn mm -hmm. a picture and she had black angels. Mm -hmm. And Megan Kelly said, like, just so boldly, like, what, yeah. like, doesn't she know? Everybody knows that angels yeah. are white. Yeah. And it was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like, you know, so. Well, I can't, I can't give you the dates and times. I can tell you the general movement of what ends up happening is that around the times that I'm writing about, there becomes this, Increased interest in evangelism. And what we, got, what we learned to do was to downplay the particular characteristics of Christ and his Jewishness. Once we were able to sacrifice the particularity of Christ's Jewishness, what we did is we created a racial vacuum. What ended up filling that racial vacuum? White. And what it does within the Christian imagination is that God becomes white. So when you look at how missions are done in Asia, for instance, they'll be different than how they're done in Africa. Why? Because Asians look a little bit more white, a little bit more like they have the potential to be like Christ. Um, and what ends up happening is that once the white man gets in our mind, that becomes the example of godliness, of God. So what Jefferson will do is he will 
write, he will edit the Bible, and then he will cut out anything that doesn't harmonize with white rationality. Takes out miracles, this, that, or the other. Uh, a number of decades, or maybe a decade ago or so, they did a God is my CEO, right? And who became the image of God in our mind? Well, it was the CEO. And one of the things that radically changed within my life uh, through the prophetic black church is now when I think about God, I see the grandmothers of that church and the sacrifices. And that's a very different depiction of God than what you see in Michelangelo. Yeah. But when you look at what God, man, God knows our weakness. He knows our suffering. And when, when we had our mother's board, it was, such a, it was such an embodiment to me of what, of what God may, may be much more like. You know, in Israel, uh, you go to the uh, Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The courtyard, to me, is such a powerful, powerful image mm -hmm. of this idea because mm -hmm. they have a picture of mm -hmm. Mary Mm -hmm. and a baby Jesus. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is there are probably 20 to 30 different pictures, mm -hmm. different ethnicities. Mm -hmm. There's an Ethiopian picture, there's a Korean picture, there's a Chinese picture, mm -hmm. there's an Italian picture. Mm -hmm. And the Mary and Jesus mm -hmm. look like each of those nationalities. Mm. And yeah. one of the things that struck me about that was um, you cannot use Christianity mm -hmm. to enslave me mm -hmm. if Jesus looks like me. Right, right. And in Denver Harbor, right down the street uh, from where I was, there is this powerful picture. It's in Nieto Park, and it's a play off of Michelangelo's uh, Piata, where, where Mary's holding, holding Jesus. And who Mary is holding is a young immigrant kid with the red bandana. Little Red was the gang of the neighborhood. And that was what Jesus looked like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And see, and, and, that's, and that's, I think, part of the challenge because mm -hmm. now, you know, all of us know that you couldn't hide a blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby in Egypt today, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And yeah. so, it, but it's always, it, it's always interesting when you start talking about that now, mm -hmm. my white evangelical friends, the same ones who mm -hmm. say, you know, black lives don't matter, all lives matter, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, don't play the race card, they say, well, it doesn't matter what color Jesus is. Mm -hmm. You know, now, now it doesn't matter. Right. Well, no, no, it mattered yeah. like for, for, for hundreds yeah. of years when yeah. that was a tool of enslavement. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is never, the challenge is do we recognize that we've all mm -hmm. been created in the image mm -hmm. of God instead of trying mm -hmm. to recreate God in our image? Right. You know, when right. we recreate him in our image, then mm -hmm. we do the rest of the image of God mm -hmm. a disservice. Absolutely. And that's, and that's, you know, one of the powerful moments for me. Um, we have heard that black slaves were taught from the Old Testament mm -hmm. um, on Sunday. Mm -hmm. How has this affected African-Americans today? The, you know, one of the, I don't know if I have a good answer to that, but I'll, I'll, I'll spin off a, a different type of answer. Um, when we looked at Moses, for instance, from a white church perspective. What we saw was the lawgiver. It's not what African Americans saw. They saw the liberator, right? Um, 
they saw that God was for them, that he was fighting for them. Moses in the white church was who we were getting away from, not who we were mimicking. Hmm. Hmm. Why does the white church do more abroad for the poor, but doesn't or don't recognize the need for helping the poor in America? Whenever I'm working in my own city that has a very different claim on me than working in a different city. And so, for instance, like one of the lies that we have in our culture now is that the poor in America don't have it that bad. In fact, you know, the poor all over the world have it so much worse which is true in undeveloped countries, but it is not true in any developed countries. And so the claim in our own city would be much more radical if we had those relationships yeah. than what it can be when it's in a different country. You, you know, it's interesting you say that. I went on a trip with Compassion International mm -hmm. to Guatemala, mm -hmm. and it was all African-American pastors, mm -hmm. and they were just so moved by the poverty that mm -hmm. we saw. And, and the poverty was, pretty mm -hmm. extreme mm -hmm. and they said man see you know people in America we, we got it mm -hmm. so much better and I mm -hmm. you know and they started using the examples that we saw and I said mm -hmm. yeah but I can I can walk to mm -hmm. houses in my Absolutely. neighborhood that look just like that yeah look just like that where you know dirt floors mm -hmm. and no they don't have indoor plumbing mm -hmm. and they flush the toilet with a bucket of water mm -hmm. like I that I, I no, I see right. that. It was like, oh, no, you don't see it like this. And I was like, no, maybe you don't see it, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's eerily similar, you know. Eerily and, similar. And, you know, I've had, uh, I, took a, I took throughout Fifth Ward uh, someone from South Africa who had lived in the shanty towns in South Africa. He says, this looks very similar to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Somebody asked a question about the knowledge and all the information you have researched and found. Where mm -hmm. can you find it? Um, I, I would suggest to you that you buy the book. Mm -hmm. Joel does a tremendous job of indexing and footnoting his statements. And one of the powerful things about the book is uh, when he talks about the things that Thomas Hobbes said, John Locke said, Adam Smith said, he goes to the primary documents, to their own words to the books that they wrote, not what people said about them, but what they actually said. Mm -hmm. And you're able to see it yourself and be able to track it. And so uh, I really want to just give that commercial for anybody that's watching, wherever you're watching, to order the book. Um, you will have a great time looking at it and going through that. Thank you, ma'am. Um, how many white churches or white organizations have agreed to allow you to have a book <laughs> discussion on America's unholy ghosts? Oh, uh, none. <laughs> so far, actually, you know, I, I would say this. Um, you know, I talk about the segregated church that I came from. We had, and it was just a miracle. God gave them a wonderful pastor. And he is being mentored by an African-American pastor. And so I do believe uh, at some point that those two churches are going to come together. And we're going to do a book conversation at some point. All right. Um, 
things have been this way a long time. Mm -hmm. I think all of us would agree that some things have changed. Mm -hmm. uh, some have changed more superficially sure. than they have at the core of their mm -hmm. spirit. Do you see things changing in your lifetime or right. soon or ever? Right. Well, for, for me, when you see how sick the system is, you know that you need a miracle. You know, and when God does that miracle and who God does it through, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but Martin Luther King Jr. didn't come up overnight. I mean, the tradition that formed King to do what he did was 100 years old by the time that it happened. And since we know that it has happened, it holds us accountable that it can happen again. Um, and so I am not, uh, I am not optimistic, uh, but that don't matter. You know, God don't ask for permission. Change don't ask for permission. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I love about scripture is that it promised to make us witnesses. And what I've always taken that scripture to mean is that you're going to watch sometime at some point, you'll get to watch God do the impossible. Um, we don't know when that will happen. Uh, you know, the prayer is, is how do we learn to live faithfully while we're waiting for God to do his miracles? Yeah. Well, and, and even if we're not optimistic, we, we can still be hopeful. We can be, well, there, you know. three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. Yeah. And uh, that hope has a claim on us. It, it has a claim with us. And sometimes that hope brings our spirits down and sometimes that hope is the cross we bear yeah but hope remains well joel i, I want to um, say thank you for having the faith and the courage to write this book it's um I think it's a must read for anybody in ministry, out of ministry, mm -hmm. in politics, out of politics. It, it explains mm -hmm. so much of why we see what we see. That what we see didn't happen by accident. Mm -hmm. It's not natural order. No. It's not that one group is inferior to another, mm -hmm. that this was strategic, was engineered. calculated, engineered, mm -hmm. planned, mm -hmm. and that we have to take responsibility mm -hmm. to now make it right mm -hmm. and to fix it. And this is not, for all of us who are here and all who are listening, mm -hmm. you know, we need to make the change, not for black people, not for women, we need to make the change to make us better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right? Because when I do you wrong, I harm myself. Mm -hmm. it, it, it vexes my own spirit. Mm -hmm. And we have to do all that we can to be the best that we can be. Um, Joel, I know you wanted to thank some people. I do. And so let's do that. And okay. then we're going to get ready to Wonderful. sign some books. But join me in thanking God for... Joel Gozer. Thank you.
Thank you very much.